With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's happening, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Crossed Up. Uh, Myself, along with Anthony Sanfilippo, joined today by Jim Eisenreich, Uh, Of course, a key member of the 1993 Philadelphia Phillies also won a World Series with the 97 Marlins 15 year career Um, and just somebody that I I have to tell you, Jim, uh, when growing up, I was in second grade uh, when the 93 (laughs) Phillies were making their run. And that was really the team like a lot of people in this area that I think helped kids fall in love with the game of baseball. And I know that that was the year that I, I certainly fell in love with it. And uh, this is a, a, an especially cool interview uh, for me. Uh, I cover the team, and, and it's, it's kind of more of like a professional thing. But I, I'll be honest with you before we kind of really get into it here. You were my favorite player on that team, so much so that the days that Wes Chamberlain was out in right field, I remember kind of always being disappointed. Uh, not because he wasn't a good player, but just because it was uh, – just I like seeing you in there so I'm really uh, needless to say very excited to have you and I'm sure Anthony is as well so thanks for joining us yeah absolutely thank you for having me it's always good to talk to the Philly guys yeah and I'll be honest with you Jim I'm, I'm a little bit older than Bob so I was in college in 93 <laughs> so I really you guys really were you know I was really embracing the 93 season and we're going to get into all that stuff from 93 and your time here in Philly and everything else but I want to take you back to the very beginning I know you grew up in St. Cloud Minnesota um, and that's uh, about an hour north of Twin Cities, right? That's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, what, was, what was it like growing up there? Was baseball your only sport, or like every other Minnesota, did you play hockey as well? Uh, of course I played hockey. <laughs> you know, uh, short and can't jump. You know the deal. Like, so I, um, but, yeah, St. Cloud was uh, probably the biggest city out of the Minneapolis-St. Paul area in Minnesota, and it still kind of is. Um, but, I don't know, it was a normal – Normal community. Um, I had what I always used to say a typical family. And my mom and dad, two brothers, or three, two older brothers, a younger brother, younger sister, and we did normal things, you know, played played sports whenever we could, went to church on Sunday, you know, did our schoolwork and mowed the grass when I had to do, we did the garden, you know, basic stuff. But um, I, my parents were sports nuts. They were crazy about all sports. Um, baseball happened to be the one they probably liked the most. Um, but yeah, I did play hockey. I, uh, you know, I grew up, we had, a, we, my dad actually made, made us a rink in the backyard and it was a pretty decent sized rink. One summer we put floodlights on the house so we could actually play at night. That's awesome. And it was pretty fun. So I loved hockey. Yeah. I, I'm a, the reason I had to ask that question is because I'm a hockey beat writer, right? Bob's the baseball mm-hmm. beat writer. I'm the hockey guy. Uh, I just love baseball, but you know, I had to get the hockey thing in because I know the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about is going to be baseball related. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll interrupt real quick though. Cause I got, I can got one for you. Yeah. When I was an eighth grader, um, I was going to my high school hockey, hockey teams game. They were playing a St. Paul Harding team on St. Paul Harding was a senior um, named Paul Holmgren. 
Oh, there you go. That's fantastic. And, and you know, we knew now then, or we knew then, after he laid out our best player in the middle of the ice, that he was probably going to play. And I'll be honest, I grew up a Minnesota North Star fan, hated the Flyers. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it was the way it was. Yeah. Uh, I I don't want to. I don't want to derail this thing too much, but Anthony has a ton of familiarity with the Flyers organization. And interestingly enough, I was uh, Paul Holmgren's daughter's one of her best friends growing up in high school here. So it's all coming full circle in this interview. That's great. Um, So listen, you know, obviously a big part of your story uh, deals with Tourette's syndrome and we're going to talk about that. And and obviously it had a huge impact on your career, uh, especially early on. Um, since we're sort of in your childhood right now, can you talk about your, your early experiences? And, and I know you weren't diagnosed until the mid 1980s, but how did it kind of come about where you started to realize that something wasn't quite right, uh, as a child? Well, I, I think, uh, first and foremost, I went to, I went to a Catholic grade school, um, which is what most of the kids in my neighborhood did. That's just kind of the way it was. Uh, and so about, I don't know, third grade, um, I noticed that I was very uncomfortable in, in class. And I had nuns for teachers, you know, the stereotype and all that stuff is there, but it's not really there. But anyway, uh, I had a hard time sitting in class. I, I was very uncomfortable. I always wanted to pay attention. My dad was a, a teacher. Um, my older brothers were teachers and, you know, my family was teachers. I was the oddball that played ball. So, but, um, Anyway, I, I would I would have this little what we call now ticks. But I'd make little noises. I'd grunt. I'd sniffle like I had a cold, um, which you know in Minnesota was pretty typical in the winter. That's what we always thought. Um, but they never went away. And the more I thought about, I didn't like doing them for one thing, I, because Eisenreich's at the top of the alphabet. I sat in the front of the class, which I absolutely could not stand either, because then I felt everybody was looking at me. So anyway, that went on, and I. The only way I knew how to get uh, out of it and to deal with it was I would walk up to the teacher and ask her if I could go to the bathroom. And so I'd go to the bathroom, not necessarily having to go, but just to get out of there because I was sweating bullets. It felt terrible. Um, and after a few minutes, I'd go back in and hopefully make it through the rest of the class. Um, anyway, that went on through my entire grade school years. Uh, went to, and, and incidentally, um, my parents did, you know, bring me to the hospital, to our family doctor a couple times. I had every physical test probably known to man run on me. And the doctor would always say, um, we don't find anything physically wrong, you know, with the blood tests, the EKGs and all the other stuff. Um, they figured it's just habits. And so, if he's not having trouble doing anything else, schoolwork, playing, you know, interaction, whatever, um, but he'll grow out of it. And that was the thought. And that was always the, the diagnosis as a kid. And so I got into, you know, junior high and the same kind of thing. And, um, and I did these when I played sports too. But as you know, when you're playing hockey, you got a helmet on, you're constantly moving. Uh, baseball, I could hide in the outfield and do my thing and nobody's really paying attention. Um, you know, they just, they weren't. I knew what I was doing, but so that's how it went um, really through my school years. 
I have to ask you, um, so me personally, while I, I don't have Tourette's, I actually have had a, a pretty long-standing battle with anxiety, diagnosed anxiety disorders. And as a kid, when I first started having symptoms, it was always a, a shortness of breath. Uh, I would have, uh, you know, I would hyperventilate, kind of work myself into a panic attack. And I remember when it first started happening, anxiety and panic disorder wasn't on the radar whatsoever. And I was rushed to the hospital. They ran tests. My heart was fine. Lungs were fine. And from a physical standpoint, they told me, you have nothing to worry about. You're completely fine. I began to become very frustrated with this as a seventh, eighth grader because, you know, you're being told you're okay, but I knew that something wasn't quite right. And, and that mm -hmm. diagnosis didn't really come until I was later in high school. And it's still something that I deal with on and off today. Was it frustrating for you to, to kind of be told you're fine, but you, you had to have known that with this, you know, showing itself as an ongoing thing, you had to know that it wasn't fine, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I knew it wasn't. And, and the way I felt, Little St. Cloud, Minnesota, I felt like I was the only one, not just in my city or, or the state of Minnesota, I thought I was the only one in the world that did this. Had no clue, you know, never saw anyone else like it. None of my brothers or my sister, or my parents, my family, my friends, none of them did this. And so something was, was I knew was wrong, like you said with yours. I just, you just, it's frustrating. Um, I'm, I was a, a praying person, so I prayed a lot, to, you know help me. I don't have no clue what to do. I could do all these normal things. And that was frustrating too, because I didn't want to do the things that I did. Was it, uh, what, was it difficult to express discomfort with people? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I like, yeah. I couldn't explain it. Mm -hmm. I had no idea why I was doing those, why I was making noises, why, you know, why I was moving my head and jerking and blinking my eyes like crazy person. You know, that's what I felt I was. And, but I knew I wasn't in, inside. So yeah, I had, um, and in fact, just like I said about the coming out of class, that's what I did most of my childhood was try to, you know, avoid situations, kind of hide if I could, um, to to get away from having to try to explain and probably worse yet having them ask me why I did did that, you know? Can you stop? It's like, well, no. I would love to stop. You have no idea how bad I want to stop doing it. I don't know how to. Now, I mean, so you, I would imagine you sports as an outlet, like a lot of kids did is, you know, whether it be trying to blow off stress, blow off anxiety. My, I guess my question to you would be, you get to the high school level and did you have a, a pretty good idea by the time you would reach high school that you had a chance to play baseball at the, at the college level? And, you know, I, we talked to Brett Myers yesterday who was drafted in the first round out of high school. He knew, right around his junior year, he had a chance to become a professional player. Like when did it kind of get onto your radar that you had a chance to play at the next level? And then not only in college, but then maybe possibly at the pro level as well. Like what was your uh, evolution as a player? Like, you know, um, I, I think it was different than most kids, especially kids now where, you know, they, you can tell which ones have the ability and, and their dreams to play. We're in St. Cloud, Minnesota. And, you know, it was a day trip to go to Minneapolis, you know, now it's a commute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, uh, so, so I did not see, I didn't really have an inkling that there was a chance for me to play. I knew what my path was going to be. I knew I was going to go to college, you know, but I was going to college to go to school. I was going to get a degree and get a job just like my dad and my brothers did. 
that's kind of was that was my path. Um, and I was hoping to play baseball as an extracurricular activity. I love to play. Um, I actually, <laughs> the funny thing is, we've talked about hockey earlier. I had more offers and chance to play hockey in college than baseball. Wow. And, wow. and, and I loved hockey. It was, you know, it's kind of what we did. And so baseball up there, there were very few guys that seemed to have a chance to play. You know, you didn't, if I didn't go to the University of Minnesota, um, that was kind of it. You know, they were, they were the team. Um, but as, as my senior um, high school year went and my uh, senior American Legion team during the summer, um, we, we won our state championship in Legion ball, uh, went to a regional and we were runner up and, you know, I just, and I was the, I was one of the best players, you know, arguably they would say I didn't pitch. Well, I did pitch. <laughs> um, <laughs> we lost four games that year and I lost two of them as a pitcher. <laughs> um, but I felt my teammates were pretty good too. So anyway, then I knew for sure I could play college ball. I didn't know really beyond that. Um, uh, the one thing about me, and, and probably like you talked to Brett, uh, you said yesterday, um, I did listen to a little bit. We're competitive as all get out, you know? And so that's just kind of our nature. And I was like that. You know, I didn't have to be the best, but I was going to try to be, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. and so that's kind of when I felt, you know, I, I had a chance to go play college ball, and that's what I did. Yeah. So coming into the uh, you know, the Twins draft you in, in the 16th round, um, you make it to the majors in 82. You, it's your rookie year. At first month, you, you got off to an incredible start. Um, and, and then I, I know you had you ran into the issue at Fenway, um, where it was I guess it was like early May, and, and you pulled yourself from the game. I think each of the three games that you played there. Could, could you take us through what you were experiencing there and, and then how that kind of then – slowly led to what was, you know, basically the next four or five years of your life. Yeah. You know, um, Boston in Fenway, that particular series was kind of just the culmination of what it had been like for me for maybe six or seven months, you know, even in the off season, even at the, the went to an instructional league um, in, in the fall of 81. Um, and I just, I felt like physically something, you know, I was having more ticks than I'd ever had at least in the, in the recent, you know, couple of years. And so when we got to Fenway, um, I just felt like, you know, I was on an Island there and everybody was closing in. And I, I didn't, I always ask the question of people that I didn't, or myself, I didn't know if they were watching me play ball or if they're watching me do all my ticks and antics and things, you know, and, and the, the, the truth of, of that, particular series, um, they made a big deal out of the fans hollering and calling me names and all that. And yeah, it's crowded in Fenway. It always has been, but I couldn't hear a thing. I was list I was really focused on what I was doing, trying to stop moving, trying to breathe, you know, was a, a good thing. And I just got to the point in that first game was a sixth inning. I remember like the, you know, I don't like to remember it, but I do. And I was like, I got to go in. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it. And so we did that. And then the second night, as you said, I, I came out again, the third night did the same thing. And uh, I don't know, I, I think in the long run, the reason that all happened is I finally was going to get to a hospital on, on the way to a diagnosis. So it was a horrible feeling. I just, I'll tell you, it was not something I wish on any kid. And you know, that's just, it's difficult. 
so I try to think back to what it must have been like in the early 1980s. And I know that we're talking about two different things when you get to mental health issues and, and Tourette's. I know that they're not quite the same. But in 2020, we talk about the stigma that's related to mental health issues. How was this received back with what you were going through, how was it received by not only the twins, but, you know, twins fans, people in the media? Like, did you feel like you were being looked at like you were crazy? Like there, there was just no explanation for this. Like what's wrong with this guy? Or were people actually really supportive within the city and, and within the organization? You know, it was kind of a combination of both. I mean, even the ones that, you know, kind of, thought it was a, a, a pretty bad mental health issue. They were also supportive, which kind of seems contradictory, but it wasn't. Um, and you can go all the way back to when I was a kid. You know, um, I had family members ask, not not particular brothers and sisters, but um, uncles, aunts, you know, that cousins that, why are you doing that? And it was the same thing. I saw doctors then. So the mental health issue, unlike today, you know, was was looked at as, yeah, you're kind of crazy. You know, and and honestly, not knowing what it was, I knew I was different. Like I said, I thought I was the only one in the world. So I thought there's something wrong with me. Now, I didn't think of the crazy, you know, <laughs> definition because I knew in my heart I wasn't trying to do it. I was I was a good kid. You know, I I wasn't trying to ever offend anybody. But in those days, the the and in fact now still, the difference between Tourette and its ticks and having a um, a behavior problem is a real thin line, and that's what it looks like. Um, and, and back in those days, nobody really knew. So, is, it was is there a struggle to differentiate uh, Tourette's from other behavioral and, and mental health issues e even today? Like, do you talk to a lot of families? And because I, I know that you're so involved with with this cause, I mean, do a lot of families, a lot of children today, struggle to to get the correct diagnosis? You know, not so much. Um, and, and, and actually, the physical symptoms of Tourette, the tics, you know, the motor movements, the, the vocal things that we do, aren't really as bad as, like you, you said, you have the anxiety, the inner feelings. Um, nowadays, it's, it's different, too, because I think kids are so much more aware of how others perceive them. Of course, they get a, you know, everybody's on a phone. We all have, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and blah, you know, and that's a, that's a can be a cruel thing for kids. And so the outward physical tics that we have aren't that big a deal. Um, in fact, in my day, I always felt I was the oddball. You know, I, all, my goal was to be normal. Nowadays, if kids are my so-called normal, they're weird. They want to be different, you know, and so they're okay with it. Um, everybody wants to be different, it seems like. And so it's a different, a, a kind of a different, um, attitude toward it now but to answer your question it's still sometimes hard to get an accurate diagnosis because there's no blood test no thing you can medically run it's by observation so i know that you uh you tried to come back in both 1985 and 1986 um it, it didn't quite work out what exactly happened in those years and and then how did the eventual opportunity with the royals come about well, what I was trying to do, um, I, I guess I was trying to still play ball, uh, and so that's when I came. I came back after the after the first year. I missed, you know, the, probably the four months of '82, um, 
and then 83, I came back and, and played, what, two games, you know, during the regular season, I had a great spring training. I was still in my mind thinking I was going to come back and play and make it, and this stuff was going to be behind me, and I'd be fine. Well, I didn't, it didn't feel fine, and so I, you know, I voluntarily retired. Um, and at the same time I retired, I was still seeing the Twins doctors in the Twin Cities. So I was driving back and forth once a month or whenever I needed to, to, you know, get some medical help. And that led me to the next spring training also. And I did that and, you know, played a little bit of time, um, didn't have, didn't have many at-bats uh, before I decided I just, you know, I need my health. I, I couldn't do this. I didn't really care how much money was going to be on the table. I didn't, didn't matter, you know? And so I left again and, and, um, got my health. And so I actually was, you know, I didn't play any professional baseball in both 85 and 86. Um, I went back to school because I was short a, a few credits of my degree, um, took odd jobs, you know, painting. And I, you know, my, one of my passions is, is a lot of the outdoors. And so I worked in an archery shop and, um, but I've also played like slow pitch softball and I played weekend amateur baseball in Minnesota. Um, and I got a chance to play with my younger brother, which was always a kind of neat thing for me. That's cool. And so one thing led to another in the summer of 86. And um, my college teammate, who had, who had also been drafted um, in that 1980 draft when, when I was by the twi uh, Twins, he was drafted by the Royals. So he calls me up, checking in on me and seeing how I'm doing. And, and he said, you know, are you interested in playing again? I said, yeah, I'd like to another, another chance. So one thing led to another. Um, I was granted my release from the Twins, and I signed a you know, minor league contract with the Royals in 87, and really had no more guarantees than going to spring training, and that was it. And so my thought there was, if I get a chance, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try. If I don't make it, I'm fine, at least I tried. But if I don't take the chance, I'll never know, and that would drive me nuts. And so that's, that was my thought. So when you got back in 87 and 88, it looks like you played a, a little over 120 games combined those two years. Were things better? Did you come back with more confidence and more of a, you know, I have an ability to control this and, and I know who I am? Or did you continue to struggle uh, with these, you know, with the ticks and, and with the side effects of Tourette's at, at that point? You know, I wasn't struggling as bad. I think I was, I was, if I was a struggle, it was trying to fit in with the, with the Royals who I, you know, came back with. But if I go back to the first spring training with the Royals that I, I walked into the clubhouse, I'll never forget this. Frank White, who I didn't know other than as a, another player, came right up to me and said, hi, Jim, welcome to the Royals. Glad to have you. And it meant the world to me. And, and oddly, he's still, I live in Kansas City, and so does Frank, and we're friends. I mean, we see each other a lot. He's a, our county commissioner, you know. <laughs> and so. But, but that helped, you know, get me into the, the, the clubhouse and make me comfortable. And so that was the biggest thing trying when I came back to figure out how to play. I didn't worry so much about what I was um, doing with my tics or the Tourette or anything like that. Um, and they were kind of monitoring and being careful with me probably and just to see how I do. And so that's, that's kind of how it, how it went. So in 89, that's your third year there. That's kind of the year you, you kind of break out, right? I mean, you had your big season. You were voted player of the year. And we're talking about a team that had George Brett, 
Brett Saberhagen won Cy Young that year. Bo Jackson was on that team. I mean, guys like Gubazad, a really young Tom Gordon had strong years. Uh, Kevin Seitzer, Jeff Montgomery was one of the best closers. What clicked for you to be able to, you know, finally, you know, become the player that you were for the next, you know, decade? Well, I, I think part of it was that clubhouse. You know, like you said, George, George, and um, and Bo and and Frank White and Willie Wilson and Seitzer and all those guys um, made me feel like just part of the team, um, and that was a big deal. Um, Gooby, you know, your Philly guy, he was yeah. a tremendous friend. You know, he still is today. Um, but yeah, it, that's kind of what it was. Uh, and and I also got a chance to play. And I was a, I was basically a fourth outfielder because um, we had we had Willie Wilson in center field, Bo Jackson in left field, and Danny Tartable was our right fielder. That's right. And um, I was able to play, you know, almost every day because I would give one of them a break or. Denny Tartable had some nagging things going on with his body, so I'd, I'd come in. Um, and then sometimes I'd come in late in the game, you know, just as a defensive uh, replacement for Danny. And so I got a lot of playing time, and, and I when I hit, I did okay. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It was probably probably the, the best, really, year I had um, as far as helping the team. Now, you know, you just said the names. They could have easily given the MVP to any one of those. And I made the comment that, they just got tired of giving stuff to Bo, you know, because that was <laughs> he was winning everything. So anyway, but yeah, no, that was, was that was one of Saberhagen's best years. I mean, he was yeah. he was lights out for you guys that year. Yep, he um, was. It yeah. was an odd an odd year. So yeah, every other there. year. That's right, Jimmy. <laughs> every other yeah. year he was. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Um, so you you know you you finish up. We're gonna get you now to your time here in Philly. Yeah, you finish up with Kansas City. You become a free agent uh, after '92. How do you end up picking the Phillies? Because they're coming off of a terrible year in 92. It kind of looked like they were putting together a ragtag bunch for 93. What made them more appealing to you than any other teams who might have been interested in your service? That, that's the key. Interested. There weren't any <laughs> others interested. <laughs> and and well, here, well, I was 34 years old. Yeah. I was basically a fourth or fifth outfielder with the Royals. They had just traded for a couple of other guys that were outfielders. Um, and I think my time was going to be short, you know, and, and I only hit, I don't know, uh, 92. I didn't hit real well um, for the time that I played. But um, so I had the Phillies major league offer. I also had the Braves in a minor league offer. And I think the Braves were there because their GM, John Scherholz, was the GM with the Royals when I came back to the Royals. And so to, to me, you know, I, I was I was married and had a had a couple um, I had one child, another one on the way. Um, I, I think we decided that it's better to have a big league job than it was to go back to the minors. And, you know, it was uh, obviously a good decision and, um, you know, unbelievable. I mean, that's why I'm talking to you guys today, <laughs> you know? So. Uh, we hear all these stories about the, the 93 Phillies and how they're this bunch of throwbacks and, and cast-offs and, and all of that. Uh, you remember your first day in Kansas City. Darren Dalton, I found this clip on YouTube uh, yesterday, actually, and there's a story with Darren Dalton talking about how you walked into the uh, clubhouse at, at the uh, down in spring training in 93, and it's 
John Cruck, and he's naked, sitting in a chair, and he has a cigarette in one hand and a cup of coffee in the other, and he says, you're the guy with the, the thing, thing, thing. And, I mean, is that story true? Because we hear about the 93 Phillies, and it certainly fits that team, but, I mean, that can't be true, right? No, it's true. That's exactly, <laughs> I mean, those guys were crazy, but, you know, they were crazy good. And, and that's the way it was. There were, you know, as you can probably remember, there are no filters on that team. You know, I think that's why it worked for me so good. I became the normal guy <laughs> in my life. It wasn't the normal guy. And now I was, but no, they, they're, they were crazy, but it turned out to be in a really good way. So early on, I mean, that team comes out of the gates really strong. Did you know right away, like even as early as spring training that that had a chance to be a special team or, did, did you almost have to see it to believe it early on before you bought in and, and that group? I mean, the, the way they tell it now is that they knew right away. But, I mean, nobody in their right mind saw that team doing what it did, uh, certainly outside of that clubhouse. So when did you know that that was a special team? You know, it, it probably took me a little longer. You know, I was a new guy, and, and I didn't really know what 92 looked like. Um, all I remember is – our video has Mariano Duncan and Ricky Jordan and someone else in the dugout in, in uh, the car, you know, in, in Florida spring training saying, it, I think it's time for us to win another one of these. And Mariano's showing his, his ring, you know, um, because we were picked to be a last place team. Um, so the spring training went really well for us too. We, we won a lot of games, which, you know, you can kind of take it or leave it with spring training wins. Um, but we did start off, April and the beginning of the season so hot we knew it was special you know so for me to answer your question sometime in the middle of April you know we I think we finished April 17 and 5 mm -hmm. something like that and that was ridiculous but yeah you could tell we had a team then so uh, who on that team were you closest with I mean you know you go through an entire season 25 guys in a clubhouse who, who were your guys on a, on a day in and day out basis you know um you remember Mike Williams he was sure. a reliever. Yeah. Sure. He was a he was a long a long uh, long man in the out the bullpen, occasional spot starter. Um, he became my my friend. You know, we we lived close. We drove in together every day. Our wives hung out together, and you know, so that was kind of him. And we were we were he was the <laughs> how do I say this? He was the country bumpkin from Virginia, and I was the northern guy from Minnesota. And we liked the outdoors, and so that was what we you know we hung out together. Yeah, he so, went on to have a lot of success with the uh, Pirates after the fact, right? I think he was he in Toronto, yeah. and uh, he had a real good season with the Pirates at one point. Yep, he sure did. What I remember about him from 93 is, didn't he pitch like several innings in that 20-inning game, Jim, and get the win in that game? I think he did, yes. I think he pitched yeah. like six, six, five or six innings in relief in uh -huh. that 20-inning game, and, and, I, and he got the win. So, yeah, that's, that's kind of it. There's a name from the past. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So we go, we go on, obviously, the, the playoffs are just – it's amazing to us because we, we never expected this season. So it was, it was just a treat to follow you guys all year long. And then you get the Braves in the first round in the uh, NLCS and mm -hmm. um, just the experience of, of just, you know, winning those games, Kim Batiste's hit, and, you know, and then you just, you know, Lenny's home run in Atlanta. It's just awesome. And you get to the World Series against Toronto, and I guess one of your great moments in your career happens – you get the home. You get the Dave Stewart O2 pitch, and you hit a three-run homer, which ends up being the difference maker in what was a six-four win in Toronto, and split those first two games. Can you take us back through that? 
unbelievable. Um, you know, whenever I speak to groups, that's one of my, one of the highlights I put on a video, you know, and now that it's how many, you know, 25, it's a lot of years later. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do the math. 27. Say, yeah, that was, okay. was me way back in those, that day. Um, but that, that was so fun. I just, I remember, you know, of course that's game two. Um, all the media people, um, all the excitement around it, it didn't even seem like a World Series. It was like another game um, at first, except for all the media. Um, and I remember in the first inning, I, uh, I actually forget what I did, but I felt I felt like I saw the ball. And I, I hit a couple other home runs off of Dave Stewart. In fact, he's the only one I've hit three career home runs off of. One was in Oakland and... I don't remember. I don't remember the other ones, but <laughs> yeah, he's the only one that three different home runs. So anyway, um, I told, I told Kurt Schilling in the dugout, I said, I think I can get him, you know, and I, the next at bat, you know, well, like you said, Oh, and two. And I just felt it didn't matter what he threw. I was going to hit it. And I didn't expect it to go out of the park. Cause as you know, if you're, if you're watching the highlight, you know, I'm almost the second base when it goes over. Cause I'm, I don't, ever trust the ball that I hit goes out. So I'm running like a crazy man, <laughs> but unbelievable when I, when it was out, it's like, man, that was, I couldn't believe it. You know, yeah. I, you know, I didn't hit many home runs and I hit a three run homer in a world series. Unbelievable. That's crazy. Um, I, I know game four was the one that everybody looks back on and says, God, if they would have just held on to the lead in game four, we could have had a different outcome still. Schilling pitches the gem in game five and you go to go into Toronto for game six and you guys have the lead before the Joe Carter home run. Do you guys really feel like at that point we can win these two games? Like we're, 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 we're the better team and we can win these two games and take this thing home. Absolutely did. Yeah. And if you could go back to the clubhouse before, before game six, you know, Darren Dalton is, is telling us just that link. We're not going home yet, boys. We're not going home. This is ours to take. And that's how we felt. You know, um, we, we did it all year. You know, there was no battle that we didn't try to go, try to, try to take care of and win, you know, and we didn't always do that. And obviously game six, you know, turned out kind of bad um, or not the way we liked it, but yeah, it was, uh, we felt there's no way we win game six where they can beat us in game seven. So, yeah. I kind of remember feeling the same way. I was like Schilling. I used to sit there with the towel over my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told you that that was the team that made me fall in love with baseball. I think that was the night that I learned to uh, swear, too, at eight years old. So. <laughs> we had a fun team. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, my kids have watched the, the replays, and I, I, they know how much fun we had, and they know all the guys. They've met Krucky, and, you know, when Darren was here, they know they, they knew them all. And so, well, the, an interesting question that, that, you know, I've always wanted to know, and, and I know Bob did too, because he put, he sent it over to me as part of our notes for this interview. Did you guys know it was one and done with 93 or what was the feeling like going into 94? You know, I don't think we thought that. Um, but, but I think most of the, most of us were, I used to say middle aged to older guys, mm -hmm. you know, we'd kind of been around and, and, you know, the, the contract deals weren't always as, you know, final as they are now, it seems like. And right. um, you can kind of know what, what's going to happen. We really felt we had a pretty good nucleus coming back. 
Um, obviously, it didn't turn out that way. And, of course, it didn't matter, it seemed like. You know, we, we didn't play anyway, you know, in, in August. Right? We had a, right. we had a strike. And so, no World Series. Um, you know, the, the Expos were the team that were battling us in 93. And, obviously, they, they were a good team, too. We were we were there, you know, and who knows, you know, we had a lot of injuries, you know, but um, we I think we really felt we were going to be back and have a chance. Right. And it just didn't just didn't come to fruition. And then your last two years, 95, 96, the Phillies really struggled. I mean, you're not a very good team, but you hit 361 in 96, which is I mean, that's an unheard of number in baseball today because everything's about swinging for the fences and not really about being a hitter, right? But I, I remember you talking back then about how much you liked hitting at the vet. I mean, what, what was it about playing there as opposed to anywhere else? Because, you know, we always looked at it as a dump. <laughs> and, and you liked it. Like, you, you, you enjoyed hitting in that ballpark. Well, I, I never said it wasn't a dump. But I did say that <laughs> it, was a, it was a good dump to hit in. And, you know, in, in 93, this was kind of where the World Series never really seemed like the World Series to me. Because we had like, oh, what'd they say, 35 or 40 dates in a row where we had 30 plus thousand people or maybe 40. Mm-hmm. And so even though the vet is, as you say, is kind of, it was kind of grungy, I admit it. It was electric when there were people in there. And, you know, we're, we're on a field, so it didn't really affect us. But we loved playing there. And for whatever reason, I always felt I just saw the ball well. It was a comfortable park. You know, the whether it's the batting batter's box on my side or the backdrop on center field, I don't know, but it was a tremendous place for me. I loved it. You know, I, I loved hitting there. Um, and, you know, I, honestly, I think a lot of the guys did. We just, we hit well. Bob's going to ask you about your time in, in Miami, but I wanted, before we get to that, the one last thing I wanted to ask you was, I know the, there's a kind of a little known story that, you know, I know the Marlins made you an offer to go there, but you didn't really want to go there, right? Can you, can you, right away anyway, you wanted to stay in Philly. Can you take us through that, that winter and, and what that decision was like for you? Yeah. Um, you know, as, as a free agent, I think at least in, from my perspective, I always wanted to stay. When I was in somewhere that I, I felt like I was wanted, I wanted to stay too. And so that's pretty much the way it was. But then the Marlins came up with this, this offer and I had Jim Leland call me two or three times. He said, you know, we could really use you here. And I didn't really know Jim Leland other than being the pirate manager, you know, seemed mm-hmm. like a good guy. And, you know, um, but I, I, you know, my agent kept talking to uh, Lee Thomas and, you know, it's the Phillies never wanted to go more than a one-year deal. And even though I was kind of getting older now, you know, I wasn't asking for the, the whole bank, you know, and so I thought we were doing okay. Um, and as it turned out, it took probably three weeks to finally just say, well, yeah, we're going to go to Florida. But what I didn't want to go, you know, I didn't really know the guys down there, you know, that didn't matter. I knew where I was. At, I felt like I was at home in Philly and, and that's where I wanted to stay. And, you know, just, I don't know, I guess you, you don't know why things happen, but they happen for a reason. It turned out to be okay. You know? I can unequivocally tell you, you <laughs> did not miss much in Philadelphia during the summer of 1997. <laughs> I remember that team well. It was not very good. Um, when you got to Florida, I mean, you, you played with some, some all-timers. 
down there. Gary Sheffield, Bobby Bonilla, Moises Alou, Kevin Brown, Al Leiter. Did you – again, I'll ask you what I asked you about the 93 Phillies. Did you know early on that that team was going to be special? Um, you know, I think I, I think I knew early on that it should, we should have been. Um, I didn't know how because there were personalities there too, but they were different personalities than our Philly guys. You know, we had Gary Sheffield who – arguably one of the best hitters in the game, you know, but it was also arguably he was one of the most controversial guys in the game. He uh, um, said what he wanted to say whenever he wanted to say it didn't really matter. And then, you know, by Bonilla, of course, you know, him and bonds, you know, were with Leland and Pittsburgh. Um, and then the other guys we had were, were there, but um, it was, I think it was pretty evident um, midway through the year that Jim Leland was a tremendous manager and Gary Sheffield, as I was starting to realize was becoming one of the best teammates ever had. He had probably his worst statistical year in 97, but he was a, he was a good leader. I mean, he, he was a vocal guy in the clubhouse. He learned to take his walks and not get mad about pitchers, not pissing to him, you know, cause they, they couldn't, you know, he was going to hit him. Um, and so it turned out to be a really, really uh, special year. Um, and I give a lot of credit right to Jim Leyland. You know, he was, he, he would, I always make a joke, but he knew how to, to change the diapers of the guys that needed that. And he knew how to kick the other ones in the rear end when, he, when they needed that. And he was everywhere in between too. So the team, I believe, was a wild card team, right? Correct, yes. So you go in and you sweep the Giants in the, in the opening round, and then you beat mm -hmm. Braves in six mm -hmm. to, to reach the World Series, and you're facing that powerhouse Indians team going into that series. And you split the first two games, uh, and you guys are down big in game three. Uh, I guess it's mm -hmm. uh, like 7-2 or 7-3, something like that. And you come mm -hmm. up in the sixth inning, and Darren Dalton is on first base with two outs. And you hit an absolute – I mean, it wasn't just a home run. It was a missile off of Charles Nagy, and it makes it 7-5. You guys go on to score seven runs in the ninth inning in a tie game, break it wide open, and win game three, propels you to the World Series title. Can you talk about that at bat? Well, I was the DH, you know, so um, – and it was cold. If you remember, the, the game time temperatures were around 32 degrees. We had snow earlier in the day. Um, but I was a DH, so there, uh, you know, and <laughs> all I can say is I just trying to put the bat on the ball and it was like you said, I, I mean, I hit it and it was one that you didn't, I didn't feel, I knew it. I like, unlike the Philly home run in Toronto, this one, as soon as I hit it, I put my hands like, Oh my, how'd that happen? <laughs> I mean, and I have to watch the the video to see where it went. Cause I thought, Holy cow. You know, um, but I, I knew I hit it. And, you know, the, the guys said afterward, they said it was, it, it kind of got us back a little bit, even though we didn't, you know, we weren't ahead or tied or anything. Um, but it was unbelievable to me. It's like, holy cow, how, how do you, another home run in the World Series? That's just, something's going on. <laughs> it's pretty right, and, cool. And that one, and that one, uh, unlike the one in, I mean, the one in Philly was great, but I mean, that one kind of propelled you guys forward for the world series win because if you guys lose game three there um it, it might end up being a completely different series right i mean so that one that one actually leads to a leads to a great comeback and then ultimately to a championship and you were you were on base right for the edgar renteria hit that the game winning hit there i was yeah yeah i was on second base um 
and you had a tough third. I, I was I was intentionally walked in that bottom of the eleventh, as I I have to re, you know kind of uh, correct myself and say yeah they would have walked my dog if he was bad. <laughs> so but yeah it was uh, I just all I had to do was touch third. Yeah, and then, then we celebrate. Is that is that something you have to? I mean, it's funny like you know it's it's so it's so fundamental. But is that something that you really have to think about because I mean you know that he gets the hit, you know Craig Council is going to score the run. Right. I mean, you know, you're going to win the World Series. It, 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 like my initial instinct is, oh, my God, it's time to celebrate. But really, you have to get to third base. Something so simple like that could have thrown could have thrown the whole thing off if you didn't do it. Uh -huh, that, that's right. But that's that's one thing that for whatever reason, if there's anything I could ever study, it's how to how to be ready at every spot. And that's. I, I knew, like playing in the outfield, if I were the fielder and I saw a guy didn't touch the next base, I'm running my tail over there and, you know, touching the base uh, if I had the ball. But I knew that. And so I could always, for some reason, keep that part of the game intact before. I didn't want to celebrate until we were all done, mm -hmm. you know. I just, I could not do it. And I knew how to, I knew how to play that part. That's awesome. Now, one question I wanted to ask you was, I mean, we knew what Dalton meant to the Phillies, right? Um, mm -hmm. And he was at the end as well there, toward, you know, when he gets traded to Florida. Um, but how important was he as a late addition to that Marlins team? More so, I think, as being like a clubhouse leader. Was he like a, a, like a missing ingredient for that team? You know, I think he was, yeah. Because as you said, we were the wild card team and the Braves were winning another division um, ahead of us. And so when Darren came, you know, you probably heard me tell the story. Um, he he was right at the end of the July trade deadline. So it was like, it wasn't the 31st of July. It was the 26th. I'm not sure of the date. But Medicine Cincinnati for a three-game series where we'd already played the first two, or the first one. So the first game he's playing in, uh, we lose the game. It wasn't very good. So the, the next game, um, no, it was the second. I'm sorry. Uh, get my story right here. Um, the he's in his first game. We we lose. So the second final game in Cincinnati, third game. Um, let me back up one more time. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 just lost this second game by okay. it was a dumb game. It was a dumb game. We should have won the game. Um, and before we exited, if you remember Cincinnati's old uh, uh, stadium, you oh, know, yes. there's a long tunnel kind of grungy from the dugout to the clubhouse, about 100 feet long. It's pretty long. So Darren told everybody, all the players, wait here. Bat boys, coaches, manager, up in the clubhouse. And Darren took about 20 seconds to kind of chew us out. He said, I've been here two days, and you look like a bleeping, bleeping clubhouse. Like you don't even care. And so that was it. You know, we had all the guys walk back, came back the next day, and – and Darren's starting, and he's um, playing first base. You remember Darren's knee surgeries, you know, eight on one, one on the other, and a lot of them. He had a broken bat single, which should have been a single, over the first baseman's head, and he turned it into a double. And I think just the fact that he, he hustled out to second base, the guys believed that what he said the night before in the dugout was he meant it. He didn't just say it to give you lip service. He actually meant it. And from then on, you know, that was the end of July, we played the Braves in a home-and-home. Home. We played the Yankees and the Red Sox because we are now starting the interleague stuff. The Orioles were, were decent then. We were winning at least three or four games, and everyone was serious. 
And even though we were still the wild card, that kind of tipped us to believe that we were gonna gonna make it. And Darren was part of that. And everybody will say to a man that he kind of got us over the hump, you know, kind of mentally. So you come back to the Marlins in 98 and then you're traded uh, mid season to the Dodgers. And then you're 39 years old at that point. You, you finish your last season there. When you got to the end of the 98 season, did you know it was, it was time or were there thoughts about continuing to try to play elsewhere or, you know, how did you kind of evaluate your career at that point? Well, I, I guess I kind of felt I was done. Now, I still had a, the 99 uh, year was, I was under contract, but the, the team, the club had an option to buy it out and I could become a free agent. And, and so after being traded to the Dodgers, I spent the last four months of 98 with the Dodgers and did not, you know, didn't play much, didn't do well. The Dodgers were kind of in a kind of a turmoil thing, you know, with new ownership and, and I was traded, I was part of the trade for Piazza, Mike Piazza, you know, that just messed them all up and, it was going to take them a while. So they, they knew. Um, and so they spot the contract out and I was a free agent. And um, in some ways I was kind of hoping I was done. I was physically tired. You know, I didn't feel like I was in shape. I wasn't helping anybody, but, and, and I think when I, I was talking to my agent in the off season, trying to see what teams would possibly be interested. And we stuck to the teams around Kansas city. So, you know, the Minnesota, Chicago, St. Louis, Texas, um, but then of course I put the Phillies in there too, you know, and then I didn't get an invite to spring training from anybody. And so I was okay with it. I think some of my friends, my family may not have been, but you know, I was almost 40 years old. I mean, I had, I had bought time. <laughs> I don't know uh, exactly what, what else Anthony wants to hit on, but I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this and, and really ask this as well. Uh, one of the things that I admire most about you is that you've been so public uh, about your own story with Tourette's and all the uh, charity work that you've done, all the awareness uh, that you've created about it. Uh, I know even being in school, having gone to school with kids who had Tourette's, and I'm actually a teacher as well. I've had students um, who have Tourette's syndrome. And to be honest with you, I don't know if I would have known growing up about it had it not been for Jim Eisenreich. Uh, why, why was it so important to you to, to take on this cause and create the awareness? You know, I just felt I was, I was very lucky and fortunate and blessed to have gone through what I did as a kid um, and then get the help that I needed, but I also got to do it playing, you know, major league baseball. And even though it looked like I wasn't going to play after the 82, 83, 84 time with the twins, um, I had a chance. And so my thought in, and I, I discovered too, as it went, as the years went on and I started talking to kids and their families, how much they, they wanted to hear, not just my story. They wanted the hope that their kids are going to be okay. And I thought, you know, how can I, how can I let him down? I, I felt like I almost felt obligated to talk to him. But in doing so, every time I talk to a kid or its parents or any family or a group, I help myself too, because that's, that was part of, you know, kind of accepting who I was and, and the things I did and, you know, and, and all the noise and the movements I make and nobody cared anymore, you know? So I felt if I was this lucky and why can't I pass it on to kids? And I thought, when I'm done playing, that's what I need to do. And, you know, as, as I found out, I wasn't wearing a uniform when I was talking to groups anymore. It was almost better. 
I could now talk to the kids. I can go sit at the game with them and talk with them. And I could see their parents' eyes and faces light up because, you know, I'm telling the kids stories and that I did. It's exactly what's happening to them. So bottom line is I just felt like I, I want to help them. You know, I don't, I didn't like really a lot of my childhood, um, but I had a very supportive family and I know these kids do too. They should have a chance just like I did. Yeah. It's kind that's, of my deal. That's, pr- that's pretty awesome. Jim, how can, how can people reach you um, uh, if they have questions and, you know, want, want to find information out about, uh, about Tourette's? Well, I have my website. It's, it's um, Tourette's.org, T-O-U-R-E-T-T-E-S.org. And within there, there's a, an Ask Jim little uh, link where you can ask me in a question that emails me. And, and <laughs> I'm a little technically challenged, so, you know, I, it takes me a while, but I do get them answered. Um, but so, yeah, that's how it happens. Um, and I'm the one who answers them. I still do mail. Um, Funny thing is, I have a, a PO box that, since this pandemic thing has picked up, and everybody's, you know, like you guys, you're at home. It looks like, yeah. <laughs> yes, you know, we all are. My my PO box has been filled up with with mail, and 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 autograph mail, and just you know, people remember me playing. A lot of Philly fans that they just they just thank me for my story, and then I get, you know, the the families that want me to talk to. Where'd you go? What'd you do? And so it's kind of neat. That's really awesome. That's really awesome. And one final thing that I want to touch on, I know uh, you're, you're uh, pretty proud of your, of your two sons. Uh, one of them who was a baseball player and one of them who's an, a Broadway actor. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what your, what your boys have been doing? Well, I, I, I actually have three sons. Oh, I have three. I'm sorry. I thought you only yeah. had two. I thought I'm yeah. my, my mistake. No, that's okay. Um, two of them were, were graduates this year, one college, one high school. Oh, okay. Um, oh, man. But the, Bob probably knows the one from college. Who, yes. Uh, yeah, he, he played ball um, in college and, and did very well. Of course, he, he didn't play the senior year. He's all, you know, for whatever reason. But then the pandemic stuff happened. And so I said, you look like you're a genius now. You didn't play. <laughs> so he graduated. He's taken a job in Atlanta. Um, we say he's secretly scouting the Braves for us. <laughs> of course, when they play. Yeah. Um, so that's that's my son, Zach. And then I got my youngest one is 18 or almost 19 now. Um, Matthew is graduated from high school lost his senior season of baseball, lost the American Legion season. He's now playing like some games with another group of guys that he knows. And anyway, and so then, then there is my son, Tyler, who's my oldest son, who had just started his, you know, his Broadway career with uh, uh, West Side Story, you know, on at the Broadway theater. Um, you know, the my wife and I saw his the day after his premiere. In February, we, you know, got to see him and what, 10 or 11, 12 days later, everything shut down. Yeah. So about the middle of April, he came, he came home. So he, he's home kind of just waiting. And I mean, <laughs> it's funny because my daughter is my oldest child and she played college softball, a good ball player. The two younger ones play ball. Tyler, my, my actor, singer, dancer is what I call him. He's probably athletically better than the rest of us but he's a dancer and a singer and you know, he just, he never really played ball. Yeah. So except for the first year I coached him in T-ball and he's not played a game <laughs> since. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, 
I'm um, a big I'm a big Broadway guy, and so when I saw that uh, when I saw that he was in that, he's playing Big Deal, right? And that's the character he, that he, he is, Big Deal, big right? Big Deal, and he is Big Deal. That's exactly right. <laughs> and he's understudying it, Tony, which is awesome. So yeah. if uh, hopefully you know, the Broadway houses will open up after the pandemic, and maybe he'll get an opportunity to actually play the the lead role one or two nights, which would be pretty awesome. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he will. I, you know, eventually. But um, yeah, that's so, fantastic. That now I'm now I want to go to West. Now I want to go to New York and see West Side Story. There you go. <laughs> well, we all do now. <laughs> I, I exactly. want to get back too. Exactly, uh, Jim. Your son that lost his uh, senior year of high school in the American Legion season is he uh, playing playing next year? Is he going to play in college, or was that kind of the the conclusion for now? I mean, how is that going to work out? Well, he he never committed to any college. Um, academically he can pretty much go anywhere and he had some lined up that he you know he's he's been accepted at a lot of them but he's on a waiting list now and and some of those don't know um you know what what their campuses are going to be like and so they can't you know add him like he's kind of um semi-committed to it's called truman state in in northern northeastern missouri um and it's a division three school decent ball ball program but if he he'll if he goes there, he'll probably have to try out, which they would probably grant him that. And so um, he's hoping he he knows he, you know he was he's an academic kid like like my other son in Atlanta now. Um, he knows you know that if he gets a chance to play, he'll he'll love it. Yeah, we talk about it on our our show sometimes when we're breaking things down. But uh, I'm a high school varsity baseball coach, and uh, it mm-hmm. was just devastating for all those kids this season that that didn't know that they had played their last game at the end of their junior years. And it's certainly from a recruiting aspect and, and going into the next levels and all uh, it's just been, it's been a mess. And so I was just yeah. kind of curious to see how that if affected him. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm sure it affects them more than they let on, you know, they say, well, we're okay. And you know, it's kind of a typical response, but just wonder, you know, how much, right. and they are playing some games now. They just started on Sunday. So that's it's, great. It's, Kind of fun, but well, Jim. Listen, we really appreciate you taking the time today. This was uh, a real treat for for both of us. Bob, you know, seven year old Bob uh, was <laughs> you were his favorite player, and that that was uh, the seminal seminal moment of my college years following the Phillies in '93. So uh, it was a real treat for the two of us to have you join us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you know, I love talking talking baseball. And I love talking to Philly guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Jim. Thanks really a lot, Jim. We really appreciate it. And that was Jim Eisenreich. Uh, once the interview wrapped up, I, I said to Anthony kind of just a moment ago, he, he makes you almost want to be a better person. Like, I mean, yes. I've heard from multiple people talk about what a great guy Jim Eisenreich is. And then you, you sit down and you see him and you talk to him. And I mean, he is every bit uh, as advertised, you know? Absolutely. I mean, and it's funny, like we always had heard that, you know, he was, uh, you know, when he, when he first arrived here, I think Dale Murphy was still uh, on the team. And then Dale Murphy was kind of let go uh, at the end of spring training or, or very early in the season. Either way, I forget what it was with Dale Murphy. And Dale Murphy was like a, he was like a really good guy as well. And at that point, it was like, well, it's a bunch of, it's a bunch of rogue guys and Eisenreich. <laughs> Like a, a bunch of lunatics and, and Eisenreich. So, like, Jimmy was always the, the good guy, even back then when he was a player. And now here we are 27 years after he came to Philadelphia, and he's just a, a gem of a human. So Yeah, you know. I really enjoyed that. I know my mom, who loved Jim 
Eisenreich as well uh, is going to love listening to this show. So she'll be excited to hear that we had an opportunity to talk to him. Um, We uh, are going to try to continue this format in the coming weeks. Obviously, we know uh, Major League Baseball is a mess right now. It is an evolving situation. It seems to change hourly. Uh, Things aren't looking great at the moment. Uh, Don't know if there will be baseball in 2020. I still think there will be. I I know that you kind of tend to agree with me on that front. But uh, this is something that we both really enjoy doing. And obviously, Snow the Goalie, the uh, Crossing Broad Flyers podcast with you and Russ Joy has been tremendously successful with this format, uh, interviewing former Flyers, people within the organization as well. Um, and so it's something that we look forward to continue to do uh, with this show or continuing to do with this show, I should say. Uh, and so hopefully we can continue to do just that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, until we have something real to talk about as far as the sport, Bob, the best thing to do is to look back and, and reminisce on the old days. And once again, this is uh, Bob Wankel along with Anthony Sanfilippo. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe everywhere uh, that you get your podcasts.